All right, like I said, we're continuing our series called More Than a Carol, and tonight we're looking at, at O Little Town of Bethlehem. And O Little Town of Bethlehem was written by an Episcopal pastor named Philip Brooks, and he, 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 he ministered right around uh, the Civil War and beyond. In 1959, when he was 24, he uh, started, he was ordained and started his ministry in Philadelphia. And then six years later, he, he was asked to give the message at Abraham Lincoln's funeral in May of 1865. <laughs> and in those six years, Philip was just completely burned out. Those were, four of those six years were all about the Civil War. And I was thinking about that. We've had a hard year this year, haven't we? I mean, it's been difficult. It's been annoying. It's been uh, uncomfortable and irritating. But, but I don't think it's anything like those four years of the Civil War. Over 644,000 young men died in those four years. And then to top it all off, when the North finally won the war, a week later, the president who led the nation through all that got assassinated. And I was just thinking, wow, that must have been a difficult, difficult time. More so than what we've experienced this last year. And Philip Brooks was, was ministering in that time. I'm sure he did uh, a number of funerals for young men in his, in his congregation. And then he was asked to, to speak at the president's funeral. And he did that. And after that, soon after that, he was just completely burned out. So he asked his board and received a, a sabbatical. And, and, and he took a year off. And he went to the Middle East. And he, he wanted to kind of retract Jesus' steps and, and the apostles and the early uh, Christians. And, and so he took a year and, and he toured around. And in Christmas Eve, 1865... He was in Jerusalem, and he took a horse, and, and he rode the horse from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And he got to experience a Christmas Eve service in Bethlehem at the Church of the Nativity, that Church of the Nativity that, that is the place where they believe was the actual manger where Jesus was born. And he got to experience the service. The service started at 10 o'clock at night. And it went till 3 in the morning. Okay, we're not going to go that long tonight, okay? But it, he said he was so moved by that service, by the hymns, by the scripture reading, by, by what was spoken and what was sung. He said it was one of the most moving experiences of his life. To be in this Bethlehem, this kind of backwater, insignificant town, he said it was amazing. 
that Jesus was born there. He just blew his mind. Well, he came back from that experience, went back to his church in Philadelphia, and three years later, in the fall, they were planning a children's program for Christmas. And he wanted to have a new song for the kids to sing. So he wrote the words to O Little Town of Bethlehem. And he gave them, gave these words that we have today, gave them to the church organist and asked the church organist to put it to music. And Lewis Redner was his name. And, and Lewis just struggled and struggled and struggled to come up with the music for this. He just couldn't figure it out, even though he had plenty of time to work on it. Nothing came to him. And, and, and the, just a week before their last practice, Really, their last practice was going to be on the Sunday that they were going to perform it the next Sunday. It was Saturday night, and he still hadn't come up with anything. And he went to bed kind of in frustration, and he kind of woke up in the middle of the night and just had this melody going through his head. And he got up, and he wrote it down, and, and that's the music for a, a little town of Bethlehem. And I love the, the, the significance and the emphasis of the song, and really the emphasis that, that Brooks wanted to communicate was how in the world could this God of the universe who wanted to come, how in the world could he have chosen Bethlehem? I mean, it was a backwater, insignificant town where, where nobody even knew he was coming. Except for a couple of some lowly, insignificant shepherds. And yet that's the place God chose to bring Jesus into the world. I, I mean, if you think about it, if God would have kind of consulted us, you know, we probably would have got a marketing firm together. We probably would have wanted to make a big splash, go in a big city at least Jerusalem, okay? <laughs> and make a big splash and let everybody know that Jesus is coming, that I'm here, and that I'm ready to save my people from their sins. But, but that's not how God chose to do it. He chose to show up in a significant backwater town. And if you read those first verses... Those first lines of the song, you get that feel, don't you? It's a little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So you see that, that he wanted to emphasize the fact that Jesus came quietly. He came unobstructively. He came insignificantly. And really, if you think about it, that's how the kingdom of God has always operated. It, it's kind of behind the scenes. It's not really out front doesn't have a lot of publicity. 
And it slowly just grows behind the scenes. Jesus even said that. He said, hey, my kingdom that I've come to start is like a mustard seed. And the mustard seed is the smallest seed that there is. It's just very, very tiny. But you plant the mustard seed and it becomes the biggest garden plant. It grows to become the biggest garden plant in the garden. And it starts out insignificant, like you think this isn't even that important. And yet it grows and develops, and it never really gives itself a lot of attention. But it just continues to grow and infect and impact people. He also said, hey, my kingdom is like yeast. And if you think of yeast, you just put a little insignificant amount of yeast in the dough and then it spreads and it grows until it's all over the dough. But it's kind of stealth. It's kind of secret. And if you're not paying attention, you might miss it. And it's really interesting that from that insignificant little beginning in Bethlehem to today on on Christmas Eve, there's going to be believers all over the world celebrating today and tomorrow, celebrating the Savior's birth, even though barely anybody knew he was coming there. I mean, think about it. There's going to be believers in South Africa, in Sydney, in Singapore, in Serbia, in Spain. And those are just the S's. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's believers everywhere because this kingdom has grown and grown and, and impacted millions. But I love what Brooks says here. He says it comes so silently, it comes so stealthily that if you're not careful, you miss it. Look what he says. He says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in see this kingdom comes so quietly and so unobtrusively that if you're not careful you miss it you don't hear it he says what's he say he says no ear may hear is coming and so many times we miss it because of what's going on in our lives We miss it because of our busyness. Because we don't take time to think about eternity. We don't take time to consider who God might be. We're busy or a lot of times we want to hold on to our lifestyle. We want to hold on to the sin in our life. And to the wrongdoing and to those habits that we know are destroying us. But we're afraid to let them go. 
Sometimes we don't hear him just because of the cares and worries of this life have got us so focused on those things. Jesus said another reason why we miss it is the deceitfulness of wealth. The, the pursuit of, of money, of possessions. Of thinking that'll make us happy. That'll satisfy us. So many times we miss God's kingdom because it comes silently. It doesn't come banging on the door or knocking us down. But it's just there. It's just there. And we got to ask ourselves, what is it that will cause us to miss the significance of Christ's birth tonight? What is it in our lives that causes us to ignore it, to put it on the shelf, to think, oh, I'll get to that later? What is that for you? Because I got to tell you, we don't want to miss this. We want to embrace the fact of who God is in our lives. We want to embrace the fact that he's here and that he's alive and that he wants to have a relationship with all of us. Well, how do we go about not missing it? I love that line. It's kind of the last line in that verse that says, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. So see, the first requirement of not missing who Jesus is, not missing God's kingdom, it is a meek soul. It is humility. In 1 Peter 5 5, it says this It says, All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter's saying, Hey, I want all of you to clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And then he makes a profound statement. He says, God is opposed to the proud. Is there pride in your life? So much we're prideful people, but, but that verse says that, that God is opposed to the proud. I mean, think about it. If we're proud, God's our opponent. God's opposing us. I don't want to be on the opposite side of God. I don't want him to be opposing me. But it says he gives grace to the humble. See, it's in humility that we see and understand who God is. It's in humility that we realize that there's nothing in and of ourselves that will make us right with God. There's nothing 
that, that are in and of ourselves that, that, that will please God. In Isaiah, it says all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to him. We have to realize that we come to God not on the basis of our merit or on the basis of our abilities or our character, but simply because he's reached out to us in grace. And if we can be humble and approach God with humility, he says he gives us grace. He gives the humble grace to see and to understand the significance of what happened on that Christmas Eve. So that first action we need is a meek heart. It says, where meek hearts will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. So after we, we have a humility, the next step, the next action we take is to receive him. And look what it says in John 1, 11 and 12. It says, he came to that which was his own. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, he gave the right to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, John was saying, hey, he came to the Jewish people and the Jewish people didn't receive him. They didn't approach him with that humility. And take that step to believe in his name. But he says, hey, anybody that does that, anybody that takes that step to receive him and believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Whereas children, we can walk with him. We can interact with him. The, the significance of Jesus coming that night even though it was quiet and silent and pretty insignificant, it's the fact that today we can walk with God. We can be his children. And, and I, I think this idea of receiving him is just can be summed up in three simple phrases. Three simple phrases. And the first one is... Uh, I'm ready. I'm ready to do that. I'm ready to believe in you. I'm ready to to put a step in trusting you. I'm ready to say I believe that 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 person that was born in the manger. What was the God of the universe? See, the significance of that Christmas time was that baby that was born in the manger was God incarnate, was the second person of the Trinity who took an incredible demotion to give up all his rights 
and all his nature as the Godhead, and to be born as a child in the mother of a teenager? That's who God is. And we got to say, I believe that. And I believe that not only was he that child, but he grew to be a man. And that his death and resurrection was a substitute for my sins. That he died so I wouldn't have to, so I could be reconciled back to God. So receiving him says, I believe that. The second thing is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've kind of gone my own way, that I've done my own thing, that I've let pride and self-sufficiency and sin and self-centeredness control my life. And I'm sorry about that. And then third is, I'm ready. I'm ready to take that step of surrender. I'm ready to put my trust and my faith in you. And that's what it means to receive him. To take that step to, to put your trust and your faith in him. I believe, I'm sorry, I'm ready to surrender. Again, that phrase by Brooks, when meek souls will, receive him still. The dear Christ enters in. So as we humbly come to him, as we take that step to receive him, the unbelievable truth of scripture is that he comes inside of us. In the person of the Holy Spirit. The remarkable thing is that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes and lives inside of us to lead us, to guide us. It sounds incredible, doesn't it? But it's true. In 1 Corinthians 3.15, it says this. It says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? See, the Holy Spirit comes and, and takes up residency in our lives and in our hearts. And we can follow him. And we can be part of this kingdom of God that, that continues to grow and develop throughout the world. That, that's what God's promised. That's the significance of Jesus coming that night and being born in Bethlehem. That's why he came. And this happens differently to, to different people. So sometimes uh, you receive Christ and, and man, it just happens, boom. Right away, it's, it's instantaneous and you know and you, you're sure and it's crystal clear. And with other times, uh, with other people, it kind of takes some time. It's a process. It's slowly moving forward until, yeah, now I understand. Now I get it. Now I understand and I've received Christ. It's sort of like waking up to the alarm, okay? Some people, as soon as that alarm clock goes off, they pop out of bed 
And they get ready. They're ready to go for the day. And other people hear the alarm and hit snooze. Then it goes off again and it hits news again. It takes them a while to get out of bed, right? It takes them a while to wake. It takes a while for those cobwebs to get out of their heads. It's a process. You know, my wife is more like the person who gets right up when that alarm clock goes off. And I'm more the other way, okay? And I take a little time. The cobwebs need to come up. I mean, the alarm clock goes off. She pops out of bed. She starts telling me about her day and talking about what she's going to accomplish that day and going on and on. And I'm over there and I see her lips moving, you know? And, and I hear some words, but I am not following, okay? That's just the way it is. And some people are slow. But it doesn't matter because what matters is that you're awake. You're awake to the truth of who Jesus is and how he wants you to walk with him and you with him. That's the important thing. Not how you get up, but that you're awake To God, you've received him. And he's with you. He's inside you. He's walking with you. 